Hello, you are listening to a podcast from Glean, a Brussels-based magazine on contemporary art. I am Bas Blase, the magazine's online editor. Today, the 1st of December, we have a special episode in light of the 28th UN Climate Change Conference that is currently taking place in Dubai. Yesterday, on the first day of the conference, Irish filmmaker and photographer Richard Moss presented his film Broken Spectre at the Antichambers of Beaux-Arts in Brussels. The film is part of the exhibition titled Our Impact on Ecosystems, which also shows the work of artist Alexandra Daisy Ginsburg. Broken Spectre is an immersive 74-minute film that moves between a variety of ecological narratives. Moss and his team spent years documenting various fronts of destruction, degradation, and environmental crime in the Amazon basin and related ecosystems. The film's imagery moves from inky, fluorescent microscopic images to monochrome infrared scenes that track illegal mining, logging and burning, industrial agriculture, and indigenous activism. Meanwhile, we see aerial multispectral footage that contrasts huge areas of empty land with lush rainforest. Glean writer Tessa Kruger had a conversation with Moss, who, together with Ginsburg, received the Starts Prize of 2023, a European prize for the best collaborations between art, science, and technology. Here's Tessa Kruger speaking with Richard Moss. Okay, so, <clears throat> hello. I'm here with Richard Moss. Richard is an Irish photographer and filmmaker based in New York. He has always focused on documenting significant humanitarian and environmental crises. However, mostly while being critical of the limits of photojournalism and a belief in the communicative power of aesthetics. Hello, Richard. It's really nice to meet you. Hi. Yeah. Thanks for um, thanks for tuning in. Uh, today we are here in the Beaux-Arts, thanks to the opening of a new exhibition called Our Impact on Ecosystems, which will also feature your work, Broken Spectre, um, next to a series of aerial photographs called Triste Tropique. Um, I saw your work for the first time in London at 180 Studios a while ago, where it premiered. However, perhaps since this is, as most of your work, uh, is such a visually immersive video, it would be nice to start with a short description of Broken Spectre. Um, how would you describe uh, it? Right. Well, that's a that's a difficult question. It's um, it's 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 well, it's seventy four minute video artwork, immersive video artwork, um, with four screens, four um, adjacent. Um, um, screens projected uh, with 20.1 surround sound so it's uh, it's very spatial um, and it's it's a film but it, it it's not like a normal film because it's not it doesn't have characters or a plot um, it doesn't have a voiceover it uh, it's more like a dream really or a nightmare um, it's it's it basically it's I'm trying to show you um, the texture of what it's like in the field in, in the Amazon uh, in terms of the fronts of deforestation, environmental disaster, and environmental crimes. And so I wanted to just see what that looked like and spent about four years from 2018 to 2022 
uh, observing that and recording that in various ways. Um, and they form a kind of testimony of, you know, those processes unfolding on the ground across the Amazon, which is the world's largest tropical forest, expands nine countries. So as a subject, it's a vast object, a kind of hyper object, to use the term of Timothy Morton. Um, yes, <coughs> thank you. Um, the images are stretched across this 21 meter screen, I would say. I remember in London uh, that it was a really straight screen. It was really big, immersive, intense, huge images. Yeah, um, portraying all these different kind of maybe actors, as as I could say. Um, yeah, I was noticing that that indeed there was not really a story, um, but it was yeah so so intense. I was uh, wondering, the space today in Beaux-Arts is really different. Um, now it's curved, I would say, the screen. So it feels like you can't really look away. Like in London, it was straight, so you could look to the left maybe. And if it was too intense, you could kind of look away. But I feel in this space, it's really close to you. And yes, you can just not unsee. <laughs> what you're trying to make clear yeah, yeah no it's a very um new way of seeing the film i've never seen it installed in this way but the i'm trying to engage the extraordinary art deco architecture of, of beaux-arts it's a really beautiful building it's such a, a wonderful thing to see my work hanging in it uh for me um but but they have this hemispherical room as one of the galleries and i i kept pushing the curator emma um to to allow me to install there and she wanted to as well and and so they did it but it wasn't easy because for a start the the parabolic chamber has all kinds of acoustic echoing and 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 resonance and then it's got a glass ceiling which adds to that and then of course um it's it's not very deep so it's it really is a corridor a curved corridor a very very sh sort of acute parabola <laughs> and so we needed special wide angle lenses that of course you know cost half half a yeah, half them. Anyway, a lot of money. And uh, luckily, they, they went all out. And it looks incredible. You know, I've never seen it um, look like this. And But you're, as you say, it's you don't have much room to step back. So you're really, it's really quite aggressive. It's really in your face. And uh, you do, I've started noticing things I've never seen before because I'm right up close to the image. And it's, there are four 4K projectors. So the amount of detail, the resolution is staggering. And uh, there's a lot there that I hadn't, noticed before and, and that's fascinating but because i have to move my head side side to side and ben frost uh, is the electronic musician the composer i collaborate with and he, he did the score for this um he's very well known really good um and it's you know a, it's a masterpiece um but it's tough and it's i've started to feel a bit seasick in there actually and, and i think that's a good thing to dis discomfort the viewer um to put them into an uncomfortable space because then you're more vulnerable. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, you've been mentioning Ben Frost, uh, the sound of the of the whole documentary, if I could say, um, is something that also was really vivid in my mind. I was also wondering what exactly is it that we hear? It feels like a lot is vibrating and maybe almost something is screaming. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the sound of this video piece. 
Yeah, so uh, Ben look, looked at what I was doing and I'd sort of built a visual language for myself as a photographer before embarking on the film and inviting him to join w along with Trevor Tweeten, the cinematographer. The three of us have made, this is our third film, um, so we, we know we know how each other works. And, but he looked at the, the, the strategies I was using as a photographer and he said, well, that's interesting you're using ultraviolet um, photography and you're pitching the UV light um, so a part of the film is depicts the non-human, you know, but on a mic almost microscopic level, very small, infinitesimal level, orchids and and and, and praying mantises and moss and lichen, and in in literally six or eight square centimeters, you know, there's a whole teeming galaxy of of biodiversity, and you can really see that glowing when you in the middle of the night if you shine a UV light on it, um, it's it's magical. It's like glowing jewels and. And scientists use that. It's called ultraviolet microscopy. Microscopy, um, to, and they they learn things about them, about the plants that way. So I, I I was I was beginning to make that kind of imagery, and he he wanted to do the same in sound. So he he got he found himself an ultrasonic recorder, audio recorder, which is a very strange device that is was invented for people who like to listen to bats. So scientists who want to hear bats and. It can also hear mosquitoes and all of the, all of these uh, animals that that communicate in a wavelength higher than we can hear with our ears, um, which is by the way eighty percent of all the animals in in, in the Amazon rainforest s speak to each other uh, at a pitch that we can't even hear. So to pitch those down is to start to really hear a lot more of the forest. And but of course they have uh, rhythms and and. Uh, 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 they sound very uncanny, actually, when you pitch them into the into the audible um, wavelengths. Like do, do, bats would start to sound like barking dogs, mosquitoes, uh, something else, and certain beetles would would click rhythm rhythmically, um, almost like jungle music. Pardon the pun. So, yeah, and it's Ben Frost, so he could he really dug into that. Um, but he was also using analog um, quarter inch magnetic tape on a, a Nagra audio recorder, which is an old older style, I think Swiss recorder, um, which produces a beautifully saturated sound and totally different from modern um, digital um, recorders. And so we were able to capture other kinds of sounds like the thunder of a rainstorm and the w all the water processes of, of illegal gold mining, etc. with this wonderful kind of um, old, old, I was an almost an anachronistic anachronistic technology of recording audio recording that's that has a real beautiful quality to it um, and so there's these these um, there's these moments of montage not just in in between media and the in video but also between types of sound in in the score yes I really really one of the things that I really admired about the work is the fact that it brings you close yeah, to the human as well, but like you were saying, also to the non-human, to these very microscopic images. And then you have all the other images, like for instance, I <coughs> remember there was this huge black and white image that was portraying um, all kinds of different actors. Um, the dogs of certain um, environmental criminals. I don't know if I use the right words, um, like, but all the different animals. And 
it was this focus on non-human actors and this giving a voice or trying to feel them that I thought was really interesting. But then also the fact how you portray the humans in this video was also something that I remembered was quite interesting because I feel like there was not really a villain in the story. There were the, at some point, the I've said the word environmental criminals, but the people that were cutting the trees. Then suddenly we come to the Yanimami people um, that are the victims of this terrible environmental destruction. And at some point we also come to the protesters. So you portray all these different humans and yeah, I thought that was beautiful. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the, I suppose, one of our intentions was to, was rather than, rather than shake, wag our, shake our finger at these people and paint them as villains, is to show them as people because they have far less opportunities than we do in more developed nations. And, and as a result, you know, they need to put food on the table. And as you get closer and build relationships with environmental criminals, you realize they're just humans like ourselves and, and they have families to feed. And, and that was very important to me to try to show the complexity, the ambiguity of, 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 of this as a, in terms of the dilemma that we all face. Um, but also just to show like their role is so small compared to ours. We have, we have far more agency as consumers, actually. 80% of deforestation in the entire Amazon is to do with the beef industry, to do with the cheap beef a meat that we get in the hamburgers and stuff, but also the leather products in our cars and our, our shoes and the soybeans that are used to, to feed the cattle, uh, huge, vast soybean plantations. And, um, and yeah, I think, I think perhaps if there's anyone with more agency than us as individual consumers, it's our, it's, it's the corporations that we purchase from these, these big multinationals like, you know, Tesco, etc. who, who, you know, if they need to be more careful of their supply chains and we need to, I suppose we need to be aware of that and boycott those, those corporations that, that aren't. Um, yeah, I guess um, one thing that this work tries to do is giving agency to, to us, the Western people that are looking at it in galleries and all these spaces. But I want to quickly come back to the, to the people that we meet in the in a video because it feels also like a very intimate relationship to that you maybe constructed or constructed is not the perfect word but um, <laughs> some kind of relationship with them and i was wondering how this collaboration or this these conversations with with all the people actually in the whole video how this came about it, i feel like it must be very hard as well well, it's north of Brazil, you know, it's it's the Wild West, literally. I mean, it's uh, a lot of these towns are quite lawless um, and the police are extremely corrupt, more dangerous than a lot of the others. And you, you're not safe just rocking into an illegal gold mining town with a long lens and stealing shots. It's simply not a good idea. <laughs> so just for sheer, you know, self-preservation, for sheer issues of security, uh, we we wouldn't take the camera out until we'd established, you know, a, a, a relationship with the person we're working with and, and got their consent. Um, and that was different for different types of, types of people, you know. Uh, there was one wonderful family who were smallholder colonist farmers who'd, you know, come up from one of the cities and 
and really with almost nothing they still had no electricity in their house um, and they were they bought a patch of land and were burning the hell out of it but wonderful people and it was the grandparents and the and, and their their son and his wife and their three chi children and you know we visited them every summer every burn season so to speak for three years and got to watch them growing older um, and that's in the film you can see them in different stages of their life and you know you become you become quite close to some of the characters you you, you work with and then others were more um, couldn't give a damn like the the burner professional burner these guys are they're paid so much per hectare to burn um, it's a profession and it's a they're mafia groups of these guys. They're big organized crime rings. Um, and they get 850 Brazilian reais per hectare, which is roughly 130 euro or so, I think. Um, and they, they're hard men, and it's hard work. Um, and um, a lot of them obviously don't want to be photographed because it's, it's illegal. and They can be arrested. But we eventually found one through, through our one of our fixers, knew a guy through, you know, just drinking a lot of cachaça over the course of you know several years and he that trust relationship was hard earned um and he led us into the forest and and, and introduced us to his friends who were doing a organized burn um so 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 those you know it's hard to you can't predict how you'll build those relationships but that's sort of my my, my biggest job in making the film is part of the pre-production is to establish those and then once i've figured out you know that side of things then i'll invite ben and trevor to fly in and film which is what i did sort of over and over over those three or three years of production that also pops in my mind is <coughs> when um the whole film there is not really someone that's speaking except for yeah at one point when <laughs> someone of the of the indigenous speech people called adnea i think if i pronounce it right um starts talking to the camera and gives this really powerful speech saying that they don't want to be filmed when it will not end up into something i don't remember exactly the right word words but i remember it was really about this relationship as well with the camera and the fact that this should really be used for something that um that will create certain actions to help them or in their fight as well against environmental destruction. And I wonder how you, I mean, it is creating conversations, it's in galleries, but I wonder if you sometimes come back to this um, thought of, yeah, I guess the role of a Western filmmaker, photographer in <laughs> telling this story. Yeah, Adnea, um, Adnea Yanamami from the village of Palamiu on the river, Arari Kuera, Arari Kuera. Um, she gives a real masterpiece of rhetoric. You know, her she gives a seven-minute speech that's, you know, it's it's so emotive and so powerful and so confrontational and so um, uncompromised and direct and, you know, I just you can't even to her body language you can't not understand no matter who you are the power of her words and how much she, she feels it and she's angry and that's palpable and it's and the reason she's so angry is because she's literally had to flee uh, only a couple of days before uh, in the middle of the night to grab her little kids um, because her hut was being strafed with automatic gunfire in the middle of the night 
from illegal gold miners. So what had happened in their community was that some decades ago they lived in absolute paradise, uh, you know, unspoiled. But because of the wealth of their land, which is the size of Portugal or the United Kingdom, it's a big area, full of gold. Um, so these illegal gold miners, or garimperos as they're known, um, have been have been invading their land, and they there's no roads. It's a huge area, so they go up the river, and in this case, Urari Coera, um, they go up with boats, and they bring infrastructure such as uh, um, uh, electric generators um, to run the hydraulic open pit mines, and power powerful pumps are required to to blast the sand and the silt with water, and um, yeah, that's a very devastating toxic process, especially the mercury that's used. A lot of that ends up in the river systems and kills the fish and everything that lives off it, including the indigenous. So the the people of Palamu were so fed up because their children were all uh, developing neurological defects from the mercury as well as skin defects. Um, young women are pressed into um, prostitution uh, by the gold miners. Um, that, of course, gives them STDs. Malaria was a huge problem. Um, I've never seen it so bad. And I've, I've worked all across sub-Saharan Africa as well, and West Africa. But this was, you know, they, they, they we, we were staying in the health center, and these kids were coming in, you know, sweating and shaking. Um, it's very disturbing, of course, dysentery. So, so they really fed up. And what they did is they, um, rather than, you know, they, they took the law into their own hands. And this is their land, you know, it's their sovereign nation. And what they did is they, they, they built a wire across the river kind of effectively a, a block blockade um, and the idea was to stop these miners coming into their land and the first boat that came along was loaded with diesel barrels so they seized the diesel barrels and they blew it blew it all up they they burned it now this diesel would have been worth a small fortune to any brazilian um would have been worth thousands of dollars and they, they it's six days upriver from boa vista from the city so it's a long it's a long ride you know so naturally, there was a violent confrontation, and in in the ensuing violence, uh, three people were alleged to have been shot, um, and some of it was recorded on um, on 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 someone's iPhone or, or 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 cell phone and and uploaded to Instagram. And at that point, I learned about it, the incident. Um, one of their leaders, Junior Hekarari Yanamami, he had an Instagram account that we we were looking at, and and so. I reached out to him and I flew to Boa Vista to try to get uh, to get access and uh, and yeah so at that point every night the gold miners were coming back in the middle of the night and carrying out these raids on the village a kind of tit for tat like have reprisals um, they were effectively just terrorizing them but they were using automatic weapons which is very unusual um, you know, these illegal gold mining towns are very violent, dangerous places, but you'd rarely have big automatic weapons like that. And so this, I think, is evidence that the PCC, one of the most notorious drug cartels in, in Latin America, have infiltrated you know, these gold mining communities all along the Venezuelan-Brazilian border, which would make sense because probably some drug smuggling and some drug labs hidden in the forest. But in any case, they were heavily armed, and Adnea was really really angry about this because what happened was the police um they never came they they have a couple of healthcare workers who the government you know pays to to to, to stay there uh, to treat them they fled and effectively you know no one came came to uh, enforce the law and so they were they were they really you know, in a very desperate crisis at that point and and i think that adnea's words speak to that 
Um, it's hard to get a speech that's so so raw and powerful. Um, and she's not stupid. Like she's she's almost like I don't think she has a university education, but she may as well have because she's really smart about her image and my representation of it. And she's confronting me, my camera, looking straight down the lens, looking right in my eyes, and saying, "Don't just come here." Um, for nothing, you know. I haven't painted my face because they paint their face with war paint. I haven't painted my face for nothing. Um, I want you, you know. I want you to do something with this material, you know, rather than just film it and do nothing with it. And I want you to tell your leaders. I want you to tell your community. And I want them to bring your army. I want your army to come in. And I want, I want a wire to be built across this river. She's quite specific about what she was asking for, you know. Of course, she's speaking in Yanomama language, which I don't speak. And it took me a good eight months to get that translated because I don't know anyone who does speak. Um, finally, I found an academic. Uh, she translated into the Portuguese, which we then translated into English. And when I read those words, I realized, wow, how do I do justice to Adnea's words? She's commanding me in a way. Um, and, and so there was a real burden, a, a kind of... Uh, um, you know, a moral responsibility to try to do to do justice to to her, uh, and so we simply we simply left the entire speech uncut in the film. And actually, we ran out of. Remember, we're shooting film here, so we ran the, f the magazine runs out of film at a certain point, and we have to change reels and put more film in the camera. Um, and so that in those scenes, we keep recording the audio, but the visuals go black. So it's very honest, direct cinema, you know, about very authentic in a way, and. Um, and her her speech is interesting because she you know really is a rhetorical masterpiece because she starts by by slamming Bolsonaro the president and saying how vile he is, and then she turns on me and and she starts to attack me you know and and and, and reminding me of my responsibility and the the contract the civ the sort of contract that that she's making with me uh, in in collaboration and. Uh, and that's very powerful. But then she turns and she becomes, towards the end, she becomes philosophical. And she's like, well, who will actually help us? We're really struggling to find out somebody. We can't think of anyone who's actually going to, they feel totally forgotten. And at that point, she breaks into tears. Um, and I think that any anyone can relate to that. Um, but, um, but I suppose that that question in uh, the next scene in the film, uh, I, I've the viewers presented with uh, a mass protest of indigenous communities. They all gather in the capital city, Brasilia, and that once a year, and that's called the ATL, the Free Land Camp. And so, in a way, that is kind of answering Adnea's question, is they can activize themselves, and through the process of democracy, um, they can save themselves. There's no white savior here, you know? Uh, and I think that that really was instrumental in saving and, and, and winning Lula the election, which was by an absolute razor thin margin, you know, and it went to runoff and it was terribly stressful. I knew young people who were going to commit suicide if Bolsonaro got back in, and uh, every vote counted. And I think that, I think that that the realization of the power of of their votes was was very important, of course, more 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 so than normally. Um, and it was an interesting side story to that actually. I in London, um, one of the one of the visitors was a guy called um, John Kerry, who's the, you know, President Biden's senior member of cabinet who's responsible for 
he's the global climate czar. So he's responsible for, I suppose, a kind of environmental diplomacy. Um, and he saw the film, and he he liked it so much he got um, he got one of his office to write to me and said uh, they said is there an online version of the film which I don't usually let people watch but he said he was meeting President Lula the next morning in Washington D.C. as well as his environment minister De Silva uh, so naturally I gave him immediately gave him the link and God knows if they ever watched the film but. But I'm glad to say that at Nea's community, once Lula took office, some months after, the Brazilian army were were sent t into Palamu in helicopters, um, and they built that wire across the river that she asked for. Um, God knows if that was because of Adnea's speech, but I like to think it was, and that's the power of art. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that sounds, <coughs> in a way, al almost a little bit hopeful. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> depends on where we are in the story. Um, Which is important, you know. A lot of this, a lot of the art, particularly art about env environmental issues, is so hardcore depressing, and people already have so much eco anxiety. They don't. I was part of a group show at the Hayward in London called Dear Earth, and I apparently it was a great show, but apparently they didn't get the numbers they wanted because people just didn't want to go. And I think that hope is something that we really need to cling to uh, and, and, and to feel our agency and our power uh, to understand that it's not a lost cause. Mm -hmm. I'm suddenly thinking about um, the fact that the, the person from the cabinet came to um, the gallery. Uh, it makes me um, yeah, think about uh, the space of the gallery and who is invited to it and who is not and i was wondering just a small question <laughs> uh in in the middle whether sometimes these kind of invitations are sent to people in power like we are the watchers we also have agency and power to protest and these things but whether um yeah s sometimes invitations are sent to to the real people <laughs> in power well, that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to show in Brussels because this is the this is the center of a European um, Congress, right? And 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 there were just this morning I had to give a little press tour, and and there were at least two of the writers were were working for for the EU Parliament or whatever they call it. Sorry, I don't know all the the names, but I hope that those some of those people will come along, you know. And and uh, tonight the Irish ambassador will come because um, I'm an Irish artist and they support helped support the show and. You know, I think that, I th you know, we, we definitely try to get people, art is a strange thing because it has this sort of uh, cachet with the elite. And then, uh, you know, I'm not sure why. And I actually sp try to speak to the layman. I try to, my work is a form of advocacy and I'm trying to speak to as many people as possible and to move as many people's hearts and, and leave them with something that they remember. Um, so I'm not trying to speak to that like very fine 0.01% of the cognoscenti or make insider jokes. My work is deliberately very aesthetic and, and it's very spectacular and it's it's you know it's 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 made in a way that will will reach a, a wider audience so that I can pass on the information that I've sort of absorbed in the field. Um, but at the same time, you know. Um, yeah, it's it's a hard question to ask because you don't really see, you can't measure the the change usually when you're. And I've, I've struggled with this all my career. 
because I have friends who are activists and at the, who are human rights lawyers, and at the end of the day, they can say, ah, I just got those three Kurdish guys off from being deported back to Iraq where they'll be imprisoned and tortured. So uh, that was a good day. I can't do that usually. Uh, perhaps with Adnea, I don't know. But but you usually don't get that. It's such an abstract way of changing the world. It's it's about consciousness in a way. It's about perception, shifting perception in a tiny little bit. But also you have to always remember that you're only just one tiny little cog in a huge machine and that you're, you're working alongside a, a lot of other people t to create an effect change in society, including yourself and the people listening, hopefully, in we all have agency in society in different ways, and uh, artists are only just one small part of it, you know? Um, you've mentioned the word aesthetic, um, in yeah, and I was wondering, <coughs> I was wondering whether, um, yeah, we could talk about as well the aesthetic of the technologies you use in this, in this immersive video piece of Broken Spectre um, because there are a lot of drone images and multi-spectral cameras and um, also I've, I've noticed in your previ previous work such as heat maps <coughs> you portrayed refugees there using thermal images and these are kind of technological devices um, that make us see things we cannot see with our own eyes. We need these technologies to see it. And often these technologies are also normally used for different purposes. Like um, I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit about the drone images used and their purpose or non-purpose. Yeah, sure. Um, well, just to back up slightly, uh, I've been working for the last 12 years in and what I what I like to call uh, aggravated media, and so this means simply that um, I I deliberately choose the type of photographic media, whether it's a camera or a film stock or whatever. Um, it's a photographic technology, effectively, that uh, carries some agency uh, or complicity in the subjects that I'm trying to describe. So it has some role in them, and it's instrumental in it in its own way uh, within the narratives I'm trying to describe because. If I can do that, well, for a start, it helps me meditate on on the on the subjects I'm trying to depict more carefully. Um, but it also allows me to sometimes um, to encode within the materiality of of the image um, the invisible systems at, at stake uh, in in the subject, which are very hard to to point to as a, a documentary photographer because because a, a camera is just such a concrete way of speaking about the world you have to put the thing in front of the lens and if you can't do that you don't get the picture and often these subjects are so abstract or as i said invisible you can't do that and um and i i, s I find that if i can use a medium that is somehow responsible for the or, or, or has some role in, in in the in the subject that i'm speaking to that helps me think about it and, and so i did that when i started my work in eastern democratic republic of congo Back in 2010, I was working with a type of uh, infrared film that sees in invisible light that is used in photogrammetry for camouflage detection and um, was also used widely for detecting rare earth minerals. So the Eastern Congo, the, the conflict's all about rare earth minerals, actually. Um, and all of that land, which is almost 
dare I say it, you know, parts of it almost lawless. I mean, it isn't, but, you know, it, it, there's a lot of armed groups, um, more than 100. And all of that land would have been carefully documented with this particular film and in the 80s, 70s and 80s, um, in order to, by multinational mining companies, in order to find those minerals. And that's what the conflict's all about. So then I learned, okay, this is great. It's helping me think through the, the subject in a really interesting way. And it also is really incongruous, naturally. It's aesthetically disarming. It's surprising. And it makes people, you know, really surprised, actually. They look more carefully because um, it interrupts and overturns and subverts the conventions of reportage photography. So then I, when I moved in my next project uh, in 20. 14 to 2018 um, was incoming and the heat maps that you mentioned this was all made with a special military grade wep weapons weapons grade tech uh, camera technology that can see body radiant body heat medium wave infrared a very sinister camera that can detect body human body from 30 kilometers day or night and that of course was actually a tool used by the European Union and our dehumanizing immigration policies to keep you know, insurgents and refugees or asylum seekers out of of Europe. So the camera's very much in that sort of aggravated space as a medium. So I, I chose to turn it on on the subject to, to reveal the struggle of the refugees and who are, by the way, suffering um, with you know all the bodily exposure that you that comes with living in tents in in the desert or or in the freezing streets here. In, I can't imagine being homeless on the streets of Brussels today. It's so cold. And um, so this is pointing, literally, it's foregrounding this mortality, this this precarious, you know, m you know corporeal vulnerability. Um, so that was fascinating. And then I thought, well, when I started working in the Amazon, I wanted to find an, uh, a similar medium that work that works in this in this aggravated space that has some role. And that, uh, that was very important to me because the climate change is one of the hardest things to, to, to describe because it's so much bigger in scale than than human perception, than us. Um, so it's hard to describe it, hard to understand it, hard to speak about it. And yet all the processes I was looking at were so normalized that they were absolutely everywhere. And, and something that's so normalized is also very hard to photograph because it's, it's become exhausted as an image. And we've seen one photograph of the burning rainforest. We've seen them all. We stopped seeing them. So I wanted to resuscitate this exhausted documentary imagery by using uh, a type of imaging technology that is actually uh, weirdly um, used not only by the environmental scientists to understand the rainforest degradation and health um, and to model the tipping points that we hear about. It's also used by the multinational mining companies um, and agribusiness interests to more profitably exploit and extract the environment um, on an industrial scale. So it's directly involved and weirdly in a strange sort of double valent way um, used by both the good guys and the bad guys. And um, it also has this extraordinary um, false color palette, very surprising look. Um, and so I dug into that and I, I began to build a visual language around, around the subject uh, in my own particular way, which no one else would have done. It's very sort of unique. Uh, and the film is, you know, love it or hate it, but you'll never see a film like this again. It's really a very homemade thing. I had to build the multi-spectral video camera from scratch because no one's ever needed one in the history of photography uh, before, and probably no one ever will need one again. Um, and that cost a lot of money and it took a lot of time. And then we 
to shoot the black and white infrared scenes. You know, that's the second time in history of cinema anyone's done that. The first time was in 1964, a film called Soy Cuba, a Soviet film, amazing film. There's scenes in that that were black and white infrared. And we were the second people to do that, actually, as far as I'm aware. So, yeah, it's a very strange film. <laughs> um, and you can see how artisanal it is and how homemade. Um, and um, it's definitely not a slick film. But there's a lot of love in there, you know? It's a lot of, you know, passionate collaboration, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Okay, <coughs> thank you. Maybe on this note, um, <laughs> with the sweat, love, and tears, and everything in it, we could end the conversation. Um, it was really nice talking to you. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, and um, please, if you, you know, I hope you do come to visit Broken Spectre if you're if you're listening because it's only up for six weeks this show and once it's down it'll never show in Belgium again in my lifetime so you know please do come along because it's uh, you know it is worth seeing and I hope you tell your friends and bring your families and stuff thank you very much This was Richard Moss about his new film Broken Spectre, which is still on view until the 21st of January 2024, as part of the exhibition Our Impact on Ecosystems in Bozar in Brussels. Glean is a Brussels-based contemporary art magazine. For more information, go to our website www.glean.art. <laughs>